Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Bob Keeling, author of three books on Florida history and culture. Now the Kerouac House is known internationally as a cultural stopping point, if you will, here in Orlando, beyond the theme parks. Recent research into John Martin, governor of Florida in the late 1920s. They plan to make Stewart the biggest port city south of Savannah. We'll walk the Yearling Trail, where Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' Pulitzer Prize-winning book is set. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Out we jumped in the warm, mad night, hearing a wild tenor man's bawling horn across the way going, yeah. Yeah, and hands clapping to the beat, and folks yelling, go, go, go. And far from escorting the girls into the place, Dean Moriarty was already racing across the street with his huge bandaged thumb in the air yelling, blow, man, blow. And a bunch of colored men in Saturday night suits were whooping it up in front. It was a sawdust saloon, all wood, with a small bandstand near the john on which the fellas huddled with their hats on, blowing over people's heads. A crazy place not far from Market Street, in the dingy Skid Row rear of it, Howard Street, uh, Folsom Street actually, near Harrison and the Big Bridge Causeway. Crazy, floppy women wandered around sometimes in their bathrobes, bottles clanked in alleys, and back of the joint in the dark corridor, beyond the splattered toilets, scores of men and women stood against the wall drinking wine spodiote and spitting at the stars. Wine spodiote being wine, whiskey, and beer. The behatted tenor man was blowing at the peak of a wonderfully satisfactory free idea. That's an acetate recording of Beat Generation writer Jack Kerouac reading from his novel On the Road in the late 1950s. When most people think of the Beats, the images that come to mind are probably the City Lights Bookstore and Vesuvio Cafe in San Francisco, or perhaps poetry readings in a smoky jazz bar in New York. But the leading writer of the Beat Generation, the man who coined that phrase, did some of his most important work in Florida. Bob Keeling is author of the book Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends. I spoke with Bob Keeling inside the small Orlando home where Jack Kerouac wrote The Dharma Bums and where he was living when he found out that his first book, On the Road, was going to be published. Florida played a crucial role in Jack Kerouac's career, especially because it represents his transformation from this 35-year-old nomadic nobody, this shy rider from Lowell, Massachusetts, to literally the bard of the beat generation. Not only that, he made his last edits to On the Road here in College Park, uh, here in Northwest Orlando. He also wrote uh, his follow-up, The Dharma Bums, here in the historic Kerouac House. Uh, And also, his last prolific period was here in Orlando, uh, 1957 and into 1958. Wrote dozens of letters and poems, and he was finally seeing success, and it really energized him. Uh, The reason why I wanted to pursue his life in Florida was to fill in those blanks 
because all of, much of the scholarship I had read to that point conveyed this notion that, oh, Kerouac, up Florida, that's where he went to die in 1969 over in St. Petersburg. So it was all about sort of his sad declining years from alcoholism in the late 60s. But there was so much more than that, so much more. Along with Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl, Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road is the most important work of the Beat Generation. The Beats have been described as a counterculture movement and a precursor to the hippies, and their work has not been universally embraced. Well, you have to consider the historic context going back to World War II. Remember, all the soldiers are coming back. You had all these prefab suburbs going up all over the United States. And in a way, it was sort of this prefab culture. It was uh, this notion that you uh, come back from the war and you have your 2.3 children and you settle into your little lifestyle with a picket fence in suburbia. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Not a bit. But there was a certain class of, uh, of literary types, including Kerouac, including Ginsburg, who were looking for uh, another path, if you will, a creative path. And the Beats really freed up post-World War II America to pursue non-traditional lifestyles, for better or worse, to uh, celebrate the search for one's own road, if you will. And uh, uh, Kerouac's work, especially on the road, really is a love letter to the West um, and, and to finding one's road out there. And I think that's why it resonates so much, not only in the United States, but also around the world because of this romantic notion of travel and uh, wanderlust and seeing what's out there. So in a nutshell, I think that's why uh, the beats continue to strike a chord uh, even around the world today. With the exception of his mother and his last wife, Stella, Kerouac's alcoholism strained most of his personal relationships to the point of breaking. He had hoped to build a communal home in Orlando with his sister Carolyn and her family, but that never happened. Carolyn is buried in Greenwood Cemetery, just a few miles from Kerouac's first Orlando home. Bob Keeling. He never really found a comfortable transition into middle age. And I think that's one of the sad parts of his story from a personal standpoint that after all of the, the great travels were over, uh, it was difficult for him to settle in anywhere. And uh, he, he never really found that comfortable transition into middle age. And yes, his sister Carolyn was here, but her life ended tragically before his did uh, in 1964 when her husband left her and her son, who was a teenager at the time going to Edgewater High School, discovered... Uh, her body in, in an apartment building over just right at the Dubs Dread golf course. Uh, you know, it, it just there seemed to be this black cloud over Kerouac and his family. And uh, basically, he poured his life into his work. And he said, my books are my children. And hopefully they'll be on the shelves long after most people's children's children are gone. Bob Keeling is also author of the book Tupperware Unsealed, Brownie Wise, Earl Tupper and the Home Party Pioneers. While Brownie Wise was a symbol of the idealized all-American suburban housewife of the 1950s, she was also a revolutionary figure in many ways, and she led her revolution from Central Florida. Brownie Wise uh, really arguably is, is the most important American businesswoman of the 20th century, and there should be a statue to her somewhere here in the state of Florida. Brownie made it okay for women to make their own money, 
And she did it without being a feminist. She said, I am not a feminist. I was a single mom. I had a kid to raise and I went out and made money and did it. And she gave women the roadmap to their own liberation in a way, getting them out of the kitchen, um, giving them an opportunity to make a financial contribution to their family's well-being. Uh, and, and that's what she did through the home party system. And she was enamored with Florida. She loved it. And she spearheaded bringing the company Tupperware uh, to Orlando, actually, in 1951. They spent their freshman year in Florida, if you will, out at what is now the executive airport in an old World War II hangar. And she and one other guy and a secretary all lived in a house on Dubs Dread Golf Course in Orlando. And from there sprung this you know, multi-billion dollar company that is still headquartered here today. But she had a big falling out with Earl Tupper in uh, the late 50s and in 57. And he decided she'd gotten too big for her britches. So we went out there to Kissimmee and fired her and wrote her out of the company history, basically. And her legacy has only started to regenerate in the last decade or so. But that's why Brownie Wise is not a household name in Central Florida and beyond. Brownie Wise's cult of personality was arguably as important to the success of Tupperware as the quality of the product itself. She became a celebrity throughout most of the 1950s. Perhaps her most significant recognition was being the first woman to appear on the cover of Business Week magazine. Brownie Wise had this remarkable ability to communicate with her dealers and inspire them. And when you read some of her letters at the Smithsonian, they are just amazing. I mean, that was her brilliance. That uh, and, and, and here's a woman with just basically a grade school education. So this all sort of her genius uh, came naturally. She would inspire women to go out and do things that they never felt capable of doing. And they would compete to win her dresses and lose all kinds of weight to be able to fit into them as, as prizes because that recognition from her was so important. So she had this almost mystical power and connection with her dealers. And if you look at their sales figures around the same point where you're talking about where she's on the cover of Business Week, the sales numbers were explosive through the early and mid-1950s, and a lot of that had to do with Brownie Wise's effect on the dealers throughout the country. Brownie Wise was unceremoniously dismissed just before Earl Tupper sold his company in 1958. As Bob Keeling points out in his book Tupperware Unsealed, Brownie Wise paved the way for other pioneering businesswomen. She had the template for what most successful businesswomen do today. You write your own self-help book. She was kind of like Cher or Madonna. She was known by one name, Brownie. And she was pre-Oprah uh, Winfrey. She was pre-Martha Stewart. And uh, so, yeah, these days it would just be accepted that you uh, write your own self-help book and that you're on the cover of all sorts of uh, magazines. But back in the day, the man who really held all the strings at the company, Earl Tupper, thought with her growing celebrity that she was taking the eye, taking her eye off the ball a little bit and forgetting that his baby Tupperware was the real star of the show. And that's where the trouble started. Bob Keeling's latest book is called Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. As Keeling explains, Graham Parsons came from a prominent Florida citrus family. It's like a Faulkner-type story. I mean, the, the Snively family of Winter Haven 
his grandfather, they called him Papa. Papa John Snively was a multimillionaire and actually owned uh, uh, millions of acres of uh, citrus land and actually sold the Pope family the land upon which Cypress Gardens, now Legoland, was established. And that's why the Snively family mansion to this day sits right in the middle of Legoland. Most people probably know of Graham Parsons through his association with the rock bands The Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Despite Parsons' limited commercial success, his impact on other performers was significant. Without a doubt, I get people saying, oh, Alan Parsons' project? No, it's not that guy. It's uh, Graham Parsons is the musician who's considered the avatar, the father of what you call country rock. He paved the way for groups like the Eagles, Firefall, Pure Prairie League in the early and mid-1970s. And you have to remember what Graham did back in the late 60s by trying to bridge this enormous cultural divide between the you know, rock and roll crowd and the country crowd in the 60s was, was far more revolutionary than it is today. Today, it's no big deal you know, to hear a dobro or a fiddle in what might be considered a rock group's song. But back then, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was new. And it was revolutionary. And Graham Parsons led the way of a bunch of other musicians sort of blending these two genres of music. Today, the lines between country music and rock are more blurred than ever. Graham Parsons is just beginning to get the recognition he deserves for that phenomenon. Well, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. You know, so much revolves around uh, and people will remember Graham unfortunately died of an overdose in Joshua Tree, California in 1973, and his road manager said, oh, Graham said, if anything happens to me, do this cremation out in Joshua Tree, California. Don't give me a conventional funeral. So that's what his road manager did. He stole his body and took it out to Joshua Tree and doused it, and the cremation really didn't work. But uh, I felt that his uh, legacy should be remembered for the music, for his timeless and transformative music that to this day really still does draw a crowd. And, and, and he's the reason Emmy Lou Harris uh, had her Country Music Hall of Fame career. There's Dwight Yoakam, there's uh, groups like REM, there's Ryan Adams, all of these, uh, the Jayhawks, all of these alt country uh, musicians owe a serious debt of gratitude, Steve Earle. Uh, to Graham Parsons and his pioneering vision. While doing research for his book, Calling Me Home, Bob Keeling identified a youth center circuit in Florida going back to the 1950s that nurtured rock musicians such as Tom Petty, the Allman Brothers, and Graham Parsons. I call it in, the, in this Graham Parsons book, the youth center circuit. And I think it's one of Florida's great sort of hidden cultural traditions, kind of like the highwayman painting movement was. Uh, Graham and a bunch of other artists like uh, Tom Petty, for instance, the Outlaws, the group from Tampa, they played this circuit in the early and mid and late 1960s as uh, teens. So even uh, at a young point when they're underage, they were able to play what I call this youth center circuit throughout central, north central, even south Florida. And it gave them this proficiency as performers to go on. And so by the time they're in their late teens, early 20s, they are seasoned professionals. And in 1962, Graham Parsons and his garage band, The Legends, opened up for a guy named Bruce Chanel, who had a number one hit, Hey Baby, back in 62. 
later on an unknown group in uh, Europe that, that later that year named the Beatles opened up for him in 62 as well. Uh, and Graham couldn't have been more than about 16 at the time. And already he was becoming a seasoned performer. And five years later, he's headlining with the birds at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Bob Keeling has crossed the bridge from documenting the lives of important cultural figures in Florida to actively helping to create new culture. Keeling is one of the founders of the Kerouac House, a writer's residency program in Jack Kerouac's former Orlando home. Well, after I'd written an article for the Orlando and Sentinel in 1997 to mark what would have been Kerouac's 75th birthday, uh, a group of community-minded folks here in College Park approached me with the idea of establishing the Kerouac Project with an eye towards saving this historic residence and establishing it as a writer's retreat. And that was in the late 90s. And now here we are in our second decade of welcoming and housing writers literally from all over the world. I mean, we've had them. We've had a young farmer from Perth, Australia. I had an inquiry from a guy in Nigeria the other day. We've, we've had writers and residents from right here in Central Florida as well. So it's become a cultural touchstone in the community. And, and that's very rewarding because in this area, especially, as you well know, we have this um, uh, unfortunate short-sightedness where sometimes we'll just bulldoze places like this and put up a McMansion and then find out later the history that was associated with it. So this time it worked out. And now the Kerouac House is known internationally as a cultural stopping point, if you will, here in Orlando, beyond the theme parks. Bob Keeling is author of the books Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends, Tupperware Unsealed, Brownie Wise, Earl Tupper and the Home Party Pioneers, and Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. John Martin was governor of Florida from 1925 to 1929 and helped create the county that bears his name. Later, he faded into obscurity. As Janie Gould reports, a Martin County native is on a quest to learn more. The 1920s land boom drew thousands of people to South Florida in search of real estate riches. It also spawned the creation of Martin County. Stewart was the northern outpost of Palm Beach County, and local boosters with some big ideas wanted a county of their own. Their plan went nowhere until someone offered to name a new county after the governor, John W. Martin. Rick Crary, a lawyer and Stewart native, is researching Martin's life. He says Martin was an ex-tobacco salesman with a fourth-grade education. He studied law at night before becoming mayor of Jacksonville. Boomtime boosters in Stewart envisioned a port here that would rival Jacksonville's. They planned to make Stewart the biggest port city south of Savannah. 
How far did they actually get? They did sell inlet bonds and got into a lot of debt. So apparently those plans didn't go far. Just like Picture City down where uh, Hope Sound is was going to be the next Hollywood. They built the water tower there and had it all ready for Hollywood to move in, but nobody came. Picture City, I've never heard of that. Yes, yes. One of the Selznicks was involved. John Martin actually chased the movie industry out of Jacksonville when he ran for mayor. The Baptist Church runs Jacksonville. They didn't like the hooligans that came along with the movie industry. They were concerned about all of the chase scenes that were disrupting business. And worst of all, they were filming brothel scenes on Sundays. Two strikes against them. Exactly. Apparently, John Martin uh, helped to uh, chase the movie industry out of Jacksonville. Chase it to California? To Hollywood, yes. You have really delved into the life of this man. What is it about him that interests you as much as it does? Well, I've spent over half a century in Martin County, and I've heard his name almost every day of my life for years. I just woke up one day a few months ago and thought, all of my life I've heard Martin, 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 and I know nothing about the man. I thought if there's anything out there to be found that uh, maybe I could uh, educate my fellow Martin Countyans, I'd go out and search for it. No book was ever written about him? No. Most of everything you got to find is in footnotes, a little bit here and a little bit there. A while back, Rick Creary went to the Jacksonville Cemetery, where Martin is buried. First, I stopped at the office to ask where his grave was, and the lady behind the desk had never heard of him. And when I went over to the section where his grave is, I asked the caretaker to help me find it, and he had never heard of Martin. When I went to the state archives, even though I'd called before, they told me they didn't have anything for Governor Martin. I'd been told they had, so they searched for about 10 or 15 minutes, and they finally found an unmarked box with a few of his papers. The lady said, from the looks of it, I may be the first member of the public who has ever asked to see Governor Martin's papers. After being governor, John Martin ran for statewide office again, but was never elected. In Martin County, though, he was the honored guest at functions a couple of times. The people of little Martin County never forgot him. And they brought him back and they treated him like he was governor all over again. I bet he loved that. I'm sure he did. There's pictures. He looks very happy. Stewart never did become the big port city and Martin County never did become the most important county on the East Coast. But Martin County really became something far grander. It turned out that Martin County really is a marvelous legacy to a man who might otherwise have been forgotten. Rick Crary says Governor Martin gave what might have been his final speech in Stewart in 1958. He died three weeks later. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings is known for her wonderful descriptions of the natural Florida in books such as Cross Creek and The Yearling. Some of that natural Florida still exists. Monica Barra takes us down the Yearling Trail. In her novel The Yearling, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings has brought countless readers to the heart of the big scrub in north-central Florida, where few people have dared to live. It is an unbearably hot and dry forest characterized by sandy soil and irregular horizons. But its harshness was part of the culture that so inspired the Pulitzer Prize-winning author. While she did research for her stories, Rawlings interviewed local settlers, including Leonard and Piety Fidia, who became inspirations for characters and stories in the novel. While she was visiting them, 
she spent the month of October, I believe it was, 1931, with them. She met various neighbors of theirs who would come to call and tell stories around the, the um, fireplace, and one of those people she met was Cal Long, Calvin Long. Calvin Long lived over near Silver Glen Springs, where we're going today. He lived on what's called Pat's Island. And it was the stories of Calvin Long that made up many of the episodes in the Yearling novel. Ann Pierce of the Marjorie Canan Rawlings Society gives group tours of the Big Scrub, which is still much like it was over 100 years ago. She is taking me to areas in the forest where Rawlings imagines certain scenes in the novel to take place. She said, this is, this is going to be, and she was referring to the year, and this is going to be a really b good book if I can get it, because the characteristics of the scrub are what made life as it was. Pat's Island, which houses the site of the old Long family homestead, is a pine island surrounded by the big scrub in the Ocala National Forest. Marjorie spent time here learning the stories of the Long family, which included one about a young boy who adopted and raised a fawn. Now this is the sand road that goes from the place that would have been that she set as as the Baxter homestead. This is Rawlings' take on the scenery from the yearling. It was two miles to the glen, but it seemed to Jody that he could run forever. There was no ache in his legs as when he hoed the corn. He slowed to make the road last longer. He had passed the big pines and left them behind. Uh, where he walked now, the scrub had closed in, walling in the road with dense sand pines. There goes over there. Each one so thin it seemed to the boy it might make kindling by itself. The road went up an incline, and that would be further over here. At the top he stopped. The April sky was framed by, a ta by the tawny sand and the pines. It was as blue as his homespun shirt. Across from the entrance of the Yearling Trail is Silver Glen Springs. The spring boil here is where illustrator N.C. Wyeth depicted the famous opening scene of the novel, where Jody Baxter builds his flutter mill. There's a picture of Jody laying down at the spring boil, and we're going to see that in just a second. Another passage from the Yearling. It was as though the banks cupped green leafy hands to hold it. There was a whirlpool where the water rose from the earth. Grains of sand boiled in it. He waded to the opposite bank where growth was more open. A low palmetto brushed him. It reminded him that his knife was snug in his pocket. He had planned as long ago as Christmas to make himself a flutter mill. Another vivid passage in the novel is one in which Penny and Jody Baxter witnessed the dance of the whooping cranes. Rawlings used Hopkins Prairie as inspiration for the scene, and today... The sites along the prairie are perhaps the most well-matched with the descriptions in the book. The pines were becoming scattered. There was suddenly a strip of hammock land and the place of live oaks and scrub palmettos. The undergrowth was thick, laced with catbriars. Then hammock, too, ended, and to the south and west lay a broad, open expanse that looked at first to be a meadow. This was sawgrass, and that's not actually correct, but that's what she called it. It grew knee-deep in water. The Yearling became the year's best-selling novel when it was published in 1938. Rawlings went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature and secured her place as one of Florida's most beloved writers. 
Despite these honors, she was most satisfied hearing praise from the people she wrote about, such as this group of local hunters at the nearby Juniper Club. After the book was published, I don't remember if she wrote to them or they wrote to her and told her that they really um, enjoyed the bear fight and, and the, some of the hunts in the book. And she wrote them back and said, you know, your, your compliments and your appreciation of this means more to me than all of the accolades I've gotten because if you thought it was accurate, then I'm very happy with what I've done. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Monica Barra. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.